Welcome to the Graphic Audio Behind the Mic Podcast. These podcasts will feature author interviews and behind-the-scenes interviews with our cast, directors, and crew. Today's podcast features director Nanette Savard's interview with author Larry D. Swayze. In this conversation, Nan talks to Larry about his Marjorie Tremaine series, a mystery series that we now produce in graphic audio. So I know I know you've been I've been reading some of your interviews and I've read your blog and I I know one of the one of the things that uh, kind of intrigued me um, as a writer, you talked about uh, you know I know that you are an first of all, I know that you are an indexer, and I'll have to admit that is a profession that I never thought about before. I would see the index in the back of a book, and it never occurred to me that someone actually made that index. I don't know why. Do you, do you come across that, that kind of attitude a lot? Well, I didn't know what an indexer was until I became an indexer. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I got really lucky. I, I worked in a building that had a publisher publishing house in it, um, Macmillan, mm-hmm. and I was doing maintenance work and and trying to survive as a writer as well. Um, and I got to, to know one of the, some of the editors and uh, they said, have you ever thought about being an indexer? And I'm like, well, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know either. So, so I had to be educated. So I, you know, it's kind of my, my job in the world now to educate people at what an indexer and, is and how an index gets created. So I've been doing it for 20 years now. Well, I, I think that's a good idea. I, 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 uh, I always learn a lot when I'm directing these books. I end up doing a lot of research, uh, you know, I mean, partially so that I'm doing things correctly and partially because I get curious. You know, I come across a term that I don't know. I end up going to the Internet and looking it up. And, um, and that's one of the things I learned from this book is what an, what an indexer does. And uh, <laughs> although, although I assume you're, you're not using index cards and, uh, and stuff like that no. these days. No. No, I use, a, I use a, a dedicated software program. It's called Syndex. So it's, it's, it's a word processing program designed specifically for creating indexes. And but I still, it's like, it's, it's like Word kind of, I still have to start with a blank page and, you know, all of it, it's not automatic or, or, you know, uh, automatic search. I have to enter, you know, I have to type every word in, so. Right. Well, I, you know, I would, I would think that would be necessary. I, I, it was, it was kind of fun for me, you know, in, in the process of prepping the script and, and, uh, you know, we, we get, we have people who actually adapt the the novel into sort of a radio script for us you know a lot of a lot of the uh, sound effects i with a payphone i hadn't thought about a payphone <laughs> in years and yeah i i had you know and and uh casey green who did the post-production on the book and you know i mean a lot of what you liked was a lot of what she did but uh, you know, as far as the soundscape and and uh, Shep the dog, I loved what she did with the dog. Oh yeah, yeah. I knew that th- that's that's one of the fun things is that you know um, when a dog like that becomes uh, and I've had other productions where the dog became a character basically, uh, and we have a big a big collection of sound effects and things that we can use to keep the dog in the scenes. But, uh, you know, as far as, you know, I kind of steered her toward that, but she picked out the ones that, you know, 
expressed the emotions of what Shep was doing very well, I thought. Yeah. And no, I thought, yeah, I'm I, perfect. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, Casey's a lot younger than I am. I mean, I remember pay phones, but I had to stop and think, wait a minute. Okay, you would, <laughs> you would put the coin in, and then you'd get the dial tone, and then you'd talk, and then you would hang up, and then the coin would drop in the box. You know, I had to think, oh, yeah, there now I re- Yeah, exactly, I remember. But, you know, again, Casey being probably in her 20s, I, 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 I wasn't sure if she had had real contact with a payphone, but... Uh, yeah, they've been, gone, they've been gone for about 10 years, haven't they? I mean... I don't know. Really? I, I think... Mm-hmm. Actually, I remember seeing something... Um, and one of those magazine shows about the fact that there are a few left in certain parts of the country, and they're still pretty important to people who uh, can't afford a cell phone, or you know, um, perhaps they've they've been in trouble, they they're bankrupt or whatever, they don't have the money to pay for connections like that, and that you know, they're maybe they're job searching, and they still do use the payphones that are available in, say, bus stations and airports and places like that. So uh, they're still around, but... That makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. But um, now, anyway, all, all those those little details were, were kind of fun for me to to look back at. And, uh, you know, having having to wait for things to travel by snail mail. I mean, I'm sure when you finish an index, you just attach it to an email and send it off to your publisher, I assume. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everything's electronic instead of, you know, the old days. Or like Marjorie, she had to, you know, if she had a question, she could either call the library or drive in and, and get a book. So right. it's, and which is one of the reasons why I, I said it in the book in the early 60s is I wanted Marjorie to have, uh, have difficulty in communication. I didn't want to use modern day. Um, I wanted her to index the old-fashioned way, yeah, with index cards and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, for for me, from from an actor's point of view, that that created a certain amount of dramatic tension, you know. And 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 of course, you as a writer know that you know you you can't have too much dramatic tension. It has to be resolved. <laughs> but you 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 need those moments to build up. You know, build up to that climax, and then you know, I, I heard I heard someone say once that the uh, the structure of a three act play is in the first act you get the protagonist up a tree, the second act you yeah. throw you throw rocks at him, and the third act you get him down again. <laughs> there you go. So you know that second act dramatic tension is you know poor Marjorie having to look forward to talking to her publisher. Um, yeah. Yeah. That. <laughs> So I, you know, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. My, my publishers are they're they're a lot nicer than than Richard Ross. So they're usually not that difficult to to deal with. Well, you know, the, uh, <laughs> when I was working with the actor who was playing Rothstein, you know, I I didn't want him to be a total jerk. I just I wanted him to say, look, you know, again, you know, perhaps he too is feeling the tension of that distance that he can't get the answers that he needs immediately like we do today right. and that you know his his frustration is building and he's he's got he's got a lot of pots on the fire i mean he he's uh he's juggling several different books at a time you know and and uh um so you know i said don't don't just make him a jerk for the heck of it you know he has a reason 
that he's short with her. And also he lives in New York. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, yeah, he, he's not he's not familiar with what uh, I believe uh, I've heard to referred to as Minnesota nice. You know, where. Yeah. There, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. yeah you know, and, and the index is is it's the very last thing that gets done yeah. before the book gets to the printer. So so there's a lot of pressure on that schedule. So. Right. And you're absolutely right. He's he's under a lot of pressure for a lot for a lot of different reasons. Right. But, you know, I think I think there is, too. Uh, I mean, my experience is there's sort of a cultural difference there um, where you're in an area where, you know, you live at a very, very fast pace and, you know, you're dealing with people in other areas who live at a somewhat slower pace. And, uh, you know, having, having been to New York many times, you know, it's it's just that everybody's in a hurry and there's a lot of distractions. And so if you're loud... It's because you need to be heard, not necessarily because you're angry. But- there you go. <laughs> People in North Dakota, if they're in a hurry, they're probably running to the storm cellar because there's a tornado coming. Exactly. Other than that. <laughs> <laughs> What's the rush? <laughs> there yeah. you go. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was interested. I, I read in one interview that, you know, your, your, your writing process was kind of a free-flowing thing. You like to let the ideas just sort of come to you, and, and that's maybe a little bit at odds with the sort of uh, organization that's necessary for your work as an indexer. I mean, does, does, is, is, uh, does the writing express a desire in you to let things come easily rather than having to be organized? It's you know it might be a little yin and yang, right? Maybe, um, but I I like to write to find out what happens next. Yeah. So hopefully that will translate over to the reader wanting to read to find out what happens next. I usually I know a little bit ahead. I want to know a little bit, but I like to. I don't like it. I don't want to be so rigid. Indexing is very rigid and very structured, and. I don't think I could live my entire creative life in that way. So it's, it's, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a Gemini. I, the lights are on and who knows who's home. Um, <laughs> but the creative process is a little, little different for writing than it is for, for indexing. And um, I just, I, yeah, I like the, I like the freedom of it and of not knowing what's going to happen next. Um, I, you know, hopefully, I- Go ahead. When I get to the end, it all works out. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I, I read, uh, I think it was in, um, I read the uh, autobiography of um, Sheila Graham, who was in a relationship with F. Scott Fitzgerald. I think it's called uh, Beloved Infidel. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, she described how, how Fitzgerald, was, you know, was trying to teach her how to write and that he would start with a detailed outline. I mean, he would literally outline how the entire book was going to go and seem to insist that that's how it should be. And I've done interviews with other writers, uh, you know, other authors whose work we've, we've produced. And uh, that just generally, for most of them, seems not to be the, the case. I, you know, I think that's part of the joy. I think Stephen King said, when, you know, when you start writing, it's a rock sticking, little rock sticking out above the ground. And then you dig and, it, and it's a boulder, you know, and, and it becomes 
more and more and more. And I think I think that's you know the joy of those happy accidents mm-hmm. is part of the thing that keeps a writer coming back. Um, being confined by a you know an eighty page outline or whatever, and knowing exactly what's going to happen on page twenty seven and the structures. You know, I work loosely with a with the Act One, Act Two, Act Three structure myself, and I think that's that's as deep as I want to go into that. Um, otherwise, you, I think you close yourself off to the things that that the book wants to do because the book is sometimes the, you know the book is a creature all of its own. It takes on a, a life of its own sometimes. If and that I, makes any yeah. sense. It does. No, I've heard that. I've heard that a lot from other writers. And uh, I, I mean, as an actor. Uh, I, you know, I've done stage work as well as as voice work, and uh, you know, get, getting the the uh, the play up on its feet, uh, so to speak, is is gratifying. But um, most of the the joy of it, and you know, and and yes, the the response of an audience is great and all that. But I think for for a lot of actors, the process is the really compelling part is is finding out who this character is you know you have you have lines that the character says and those can't change but what's behind those lines why do they say what they say why do they do what they do and uh that rehearsal process of you know finding those beats which as a writer you may use the same term you know the the beats that that change things that that, Yeah. yeah that uh, propel the action off in another direction. That's the fun part: is finding those moments. Well, I think, and, and I think what what listeners need to understand is um, the not knowing what's going to happen next is the first draft. You know, and then once the first draft is done, once you have your beginning, middle, and end, then you can go back. I go back and and tie everything together and polish and polish and rewrite and rewrite and you know that's another level of fun um where the rewrite comes in because i'll leave myself breadcrumbs that i didn't know i was doing and i'll be able to discover that as i go back through the rewrite and go oh this can connect a can connect to b and b can connect to c and then you have a spider web of of motivation yeah and uh, and of course you you were doing all of this in Marjorie Tremaine from a from a female point of view, which must have been an interesting experience for you. It was an interesting experience. It's, Marjorie's probably the greatest artistic challenge of my life. Um, <laughs> she really is. Uh, when when I began to learn how to be a, become an indexer, um, just like Marjorie, I I discovered the USDA correspondence course that was designed for farmers, wives to do in the winter. And I thought immediately, I thought, wow, what a great amateur sleuth, a farmer, farmer's wife in an isolated place who's an indexer. So that kind of stuck with me. And I, and there was really no other way to write that story other than to, to come up with, with Marjorie and Marjorie kind of showed up on the page and, said, oh, this is going to be first person. You're going to tell it this way. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. But I, I didn't have any other choice. It mm-hmm. just it was the way the story needed to be told. So um, I decided to take that risk. And, and, you know, I'm really glad I did because I've learned a lot. I have to look at the world 
you know, not only through the through the eyes of somebody that lives in 1964, but I have to look at the world through the eyes of a woman who lived in 1964. And it's a, you know, it's that, um, you know, it's that method actor kind of approach um, to take and, and use my own sense memory. And, and I was raised by a, a single mother for the first 10 years of my life. So the, the strong influences in my life were my mother and my grandmother. Um, they were my first heroes, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, you know, uh, some compilation of, of their character um, in in Marjorie, in the creation of Marjorie, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it, but it's, you know, the very essence of, of Marjorie, or whether it's Marjorie or, or, or you know, a private eye in, in 1936, that you, you start with the humanity first, and then, and then, then there's gender con- to consider. And, you know, Marjorie's got a, you know, an extra load with her, you know, husband, Hank, so who's been in a hunting accident and can't take care of himself. So right. she's got a pretty heavy load. What? I wasn't very kind of him. No. <laughs> but uh I mean, I guess in terms in terms of the 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 plot of the story, I mean, what led you to put that character of Hank uh that particular sort of uh I don't know, obstacle I suppose you could say in Marjorie's life. It's, it was that to to keep her at home more or I mean, it's I you know I'm I'm not criticizing, of course, but I mean you know it seems to me it would have would have been um, it would have served the same purpose to have you know uh, an able-bodied Hank who just sort of uh, you know said you know Marjorie why are you doing this go you know stay at home or or you know well of course her the other guy um, the uh, the deputy was sort of the, the male voice of now, you know, this is none of your business. You stay out of this. But, uh, yeah. yeah, what led you to, to have, you know, Hank such an invalid? A um, couple of things. Probably primarily, I wanted Marjorie to be comfortable walking in a man's world and making decisions in a man's world in 1964. Okay. Which was, which was not you know, not like it is today. So I didn't want her, I didn't want her to start out as a subservient character in any way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it does. It does very much so. Very much so. Um, and the other thing was, um, I thought that, you know, her compassion and their relationship, because I think even though Hank, Hank, was disabled, they still had a very healthy relationship. Right. Um, so I wanted to show that as well. Um, and I, there was a reason to keep her home. As, as that was part of it, too. But more than anything, it was, it was I didn't want her to be in a subservient role of any way. I wanted her to be, from the very beginning, take charge. You know, I have to take care of this and take as much on as she could. Um, because that's, that's kind of how I see, saw, you know, women in, in my, my life is that, you know, they're handling 17 different things at one time and making everything run. So that, that, that was my starting point. And, you know, it added a, it added a nice dimension, um, a little bit of the, 
the the pull between you know the kind of desperation gee i wish i wasn't in this situation and i don't like being in this situation but i've got to i got to push through and do it there was a strength in marjorie that she knew was there uh but it was generally you know not recognized by other people especially men and and in that day and age who didn't want a woman to be strong in that way and she did speak about having to sort of suppress her intelligence so that people wouldn't think she was showing off or you know and there there was that uh uh what's the word i want um insecurity of uh you know gee or you know people thinking that i'm I'm more than than I should be, or you know, I don't want I don't want to, you know, that Minnesota nice kind of yeah, attitude. There you go. Yeah, some some of that, you know, Midwestern humility. Yes, um, and and emo- yeah. emotional reserve. Um, there are certain you don't want to be certain ways because you you know you d- you don't want to be highfalutin uh, in front of other That's people. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it's almost repression in in a lot of ways, um, but then you can have that interior dialogue and and engage the reader in that conversation between Marjorie and, you know, in Marjorie's mind. So that kind of gives them a farther, you know, a deeper insight into her character mm-hmm. that people don't see on the outside. So it was, it was also some depth of character for her. Right. I mean, I didn't, it was, you know, it's, it's an odd confluence anyway, a farmer's wife, working for a New York publisher in North Dakota. So there's there's a big bridge of things that have to, you know, or a span of things that have to be bridged um, with her. Yeah. That strength was, was at her core. Right. And had to be there. Not to mention the, br- but, you know, the bridge of having to go through a long-distance operator just to make a call to New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on a party line. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I yeah, I grew up um, actually very very close to where I'm sitting right now in in Maryland, um, and uh, you know, you you had to go through a long distance operator to call Baltimore. You had to go through long distance to call New York, uh, you know, which isn't that far away. Um, but uh, you know, today it's certainly not like that. I I called my. I mean, this is a, just just on a sideline, but uh, not long ago, I called the woman who cuts my hair, wanting her to cut my hair, having forgotten that she was in Cambodia. And the, the phone call went straight through. She sounded like she was in the next room, but she was whispering. And, and, I, and she said, I'm still in Cambodia. I was like, I'm calling Cambodia? And, and uh, I said, oh, oh, my God, I'll hang up right now. And I, I hung up. And then I realized, my God, there's a 12-hour time difference. It was three in the morning in Cambodia, well, I, and I had no—I I had no idea. I'd forgotten she was out of town. But you know, I mean, how times have changed. It's—it's. It's, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize how difficult it was just to make a long-distance call. You know, uh, less than a generation ago. Um, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that's part of the 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 challenge of the of writing as. What I consider to be historical is you have to inform a modern reader of, you know, those struggles because they're not going to think about it. They can pick up their cell phone and, you know, watch TV on it if they want to. Right. Where, you know, when I was a kid, 
probably when you were a kid, you had three or four channels you could watch, and that was it. Mm-hmm. If you were lucky, depending on on the weather and how the antenna was turned. <laughs> you know, sometimes being the youngest, I was the antenna holding. You know, I had to hold the antenna just the right way, so a channel would come in. So, you know, I think those are those are things that that I have to describe for the modern day reader. Starting out writing westerns, that you know, kind of helped. So yeah. We had to put you had to put aluminum foil on the antenna. That's right. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we were lucky enough that we had a UHF antenna, and we actually wow, got, wow, yeah, we got actually we got a couple of UHF channels, which you know, now there's a hundred channels that you can access, and there's still nothing on. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, people people today probably don't realize the difference between VHF channels and UHF no. and the different. Yeah, the different strengths of the, the yeah. signal. Yeah, or even the you know I remember when FM channels were kind of rare, um, but you know t- you know times change and uh, I mean I don't know if you remember where you were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated, but I do, giving away my age there. I um, was three. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was a little <laughs> older than that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, uh, oh, God, here I am giving away my age again. But, um, yeah. um, okay. no, I mean, I, I guess we, we kind of avoid that because, uh, you know, I, I play characters much younger than myself, and I, I want to I maintain the illusion um, <laughs> for our listeners out there, you know, when I'm playing a teenager or uh, something like that, um, you know, or even Marjorie, who's... 34 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mid-30s, yeah. But, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, mid-30s in 1964 was a lot different than the mid-30s today, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And the fact that, you know, uh, Hank and Marjorie had not been able to uh, produce a child, you know, that was too, you know, it, it was kind of touching when she, fe- you know, sort of felt like a bit of a failure because of that. Um yeah. yeah, it's sad uh, in a way. Well, yeah, I, I don't know where that came from, actually. Um, I just, I, you know, I knew if I added a kid along with Hank's disabilities, then that would have been just way too much for her to have to keep track of. She couldn't have been an indexer, a farmer's wife, a mother, a caretaker, you know, it had been way too much. So right. I, think, I think I alleviated children pretty, pretty early on in, in Hank and... Marjorie's marriage, but it also led to you know the the um, you know her closeness with the two Knudsen boys. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know that, that was and and her kind of stepping in as a surrogate mother after the 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 tragedy right at the beginning of the book. Uh, those poor kids, you know the. Uh, the moments in Marjorie Tremaine and the books where, you know, the wind would blow and she'd hold her skirt down. Uh, that was a nice detail. Well, you know, my wife and I have had a lot of really interesting conversations since I started writing Marjorie. So, uh, you know, a lot of those details came from her. Right. So we would, you know, talk or if I get something wrong, she's my she's my first reader. So she's she's going to let me know. no. <laughs> right. So yeah. the the uh refreshing the lipstick and the lipstick on the cigarette filter and 
you know, checking checking yourself in the mirror before you get out of the car and all those things that the 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 aquanet, you know, hair hairdos full of aquanet. Oh my god. <laughs> Women used to go through so much trouble with yeah. with the hair. We're, you know, wear wear curlers every night to bed with toilet or get go my mom would go to the you know, the beauty shop once mm-hmm. a week on Fridays. And then, you know, for the next two or three days, she'd sleep with toilet paper wrapped around her head so she wouldn't <laughs> screw up the set, right? Right. Well, and, you know, I remember that. Well, my mom used to, my mom put her hair in pin curls every night. She'd just kind of twist it up on her head and put, you know, crossed bobby pins. Uh, in, yeah. I remember that very well. And we've had a good time. I mean, uh, is there anything else you'd like to ask me or anything else you'd like to say? Um, I, I, we've, we've talked for quite a while. It's not that it hasn't yeah, been enjoyable, no. but. Uh, Honestly, I think I, I, I just, I think you guys, I, I really like um, the music that you chose. I just, I'm, I'm just really very happy with, with the production as a whole. And I think to, for me to hear Marjorie's voice, is very special um and to hear everybody of course i mean i think i think everybody did a great job but marjorie's the standout in that book of course well i'm i'm humbled and flattered to hear that uh i can't i can't wait for the next one i understand in the next one she goes to new york well that's that's actually going to change oh really that doesn't yeah okay all right Um, whatever That that story has changed. Um, maybe that'll happen later on, um, but in the third one, she's she's still in North Dakota. So okay. So this one's taken a little longer than normal, um, but you know, people have seemed to have um, really gotten attached to Marjorie, and I want to make sure and and get it right. Um, initially, um, the New York story was something that that I worked on, and it just it. I think, I think her being in North Dakota is probably, probably best for book three. Okay, that's fine. No, it's just I, I had I had a I had a brief thought of like, oh great, she's going to be in New York in the 1960s. I'm going to put in a lot of like, cool jazz, Dizzy Gillespie and pa- Charlie Parker. I know. Yeah, but um, I, it, I will, you I know that's that, that that may happen down the road. Mm-hmm. I'm hopeful to to use that because I love that idea. Um, but it, I think it's just going to take a little bit more time than I have. Okay. So, so, well, so, so the third one, she, she's still in North Dakota um, after uh, what happens in book two happens. Right. So I don't want to give anything, anything right. away. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think taking her out of North Dakota right after the end of book two mm-hmm. um, probably – was a mistake, uh, or at least, a, you know, maybe a little early. Right. Or a little too soon. So I changed that and decided to keep her in, in North Dakota, closer to home in the situation that she found herself in. Right. Well, on that note, uh, Mr. Swayze, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for all your hard work and your great questions and your storytelling ability and all the the post-production work is fabulous. Like I said, I couldn't be more thrilled with, with where Marjorie, you know, where, where you took Marjorie. So, 
So it's just been, I'm just really happy with it. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll, we'll wait with, with bated breath for the next Marjorie Trumaine mystery. It shouldn't be too much longer. We would like to thank Larry D. Swayze for taking the time to talk to us. The first two books of the Marjorie Tremaine series, See Also Murder and See Also Deception, are now available. For more information on how to purchase our graphic audio titles, please call us at 1-800-670-5220 or visit us on the web at www.graphicaudio.net and www.graphicaudiointernational.net where you can purchase our titles in audio CD format or in one of our download formats, MP3, M4B, and FLAC. And you can listen to your downloads anytime, anywhere with our free Graphic Audio Access app, available for Apple and Android devices. Make sure you sign up for our e-newsletter, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter. Twitter.